Welcome to a special presentation of Museum Chat Live. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. In the spring of 2020, we began to offer history lectures through our virtual museum lecture series live on YouTube. Now, with over 20 lectures, we're happy to bring the lecture audio to the podcast format so that more people can enjoy these fascinating stories. If you want to catch the lectures in full, take a gander at our YouTube channel. You'll find us under St. Catherine's Museum. We will release most of the 20 lectures over the next few weeks, and as we add more lectures to YouTube, so too will they eventually appear here on the podcast. We hope these lectures provide a bit of historical joy and also spark imagination and exploration into our city's rich history. More lectures are headed your way this fall live on YouTube. For details, please visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours, or visit stcatherinesmuseum.ca to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. On today's lecture, we join our public programmer, Sarah Nixon, as she traces the tracks of the Underground Railroad and examines the legacy of the freedom seekers arriving in St. Catharines in the 1850s. This lecture was originally presented on May 26, 2020. Enjoy the lecture. The Underground Railroad. It is a title that elicits storied images in our minds fiction and myths of a train running through underground tunnels, carrying freedom seekers safely to their new free lives. Stories of colorful quilts guiding escaping slaves towards freedom, of songs revealing code words and directions spreading amongst plantations. The Underground Railroad has been the subject of a certain amount of myth-making because of the very nature of what it was. A vast secretive network of routes and safe houses organized by abolitionists or people who were against slavery to aid enslaved individuals in finding freedom. The operation of the Underground Railroad was illegal, aiding Black individuals in their escape from a life of servitude as property of an owner was illegal. And thus, the network was underground the same way that illegal trade is underground. And because of the secrecy required for its success, there's very little written documentation of how it actually operated. So in general terms, the Underground Railroad can be characterized as the difficult journey undertook by people escaping slavery in the Southern United States to find freedom in Northern United States and in Canada. Traveling on the Underground Railroad was dangerous and treacherous. What we do know about their experiences comes from news stories and opinion pieces in abolitionist newspapers like Marianne Shad's Provincial Freedman, 
from firsthand accounts recorded after the fact in biographies and autobiographies like Frederick Douglass's autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, or from abolitionist publications like Benjamin Drew's 1856 Narratives of a Fugitive Slaves in Canada. With these sources in mind in tonight's lecture, I hope to trace what we know of the tracks of the Underground Railroad as they led to St. Catharines. An informal covert operation to help fugitive slaves reach freedom began as early as the 1780s. By the 1830s, it began to evolve into what we now know as the Underground Railroad. Trains and railroads were new, exciting phenomena at the time, and due to the necessity of maintaining secrecy, organizers began to use railway terminology to develop code words to communicate, as well as to confuse slave catchers. Those who helped escaping slaves in their journey were called conductors. They guided fugitives along points of the Underground Railroad using various modes of transportation over land or by water. The terms passengers, cargoes, package, and freight referred to escaped slaves. Passengers were delivered to stations or depots, which were safe houses. Stations were located in various cities and towns known as terminals. And Canada was considered the promised land and the final destination of so many on the Underground Railroad. The network was maintained by abolitionists who were committed to human rights and equality. Their ranks included free blacks, fellow enslaved persons, white and indigenous sympathizers, Quakers, Methodists, Baptists, inhabitants of urban centers of farmers, men and women, Americans and Canadians. The success of the Underground Railroad must be attributed to the collective Clemenstein efforts of these individuals. It is impossible to know for certain how many slaves found freedom by way of the railroad, but estimates suggest that as many as 30,000 to 40,000 freedom seekers entered Canada in this last decade. You'll see on this map the various routes of the Underground Railroad. There was not just one track to freedom. The gray area represents slave-owning states, and the blue marks the free states. The red arrows show that slaves fleeing from the south made their way north and into Canada, as well as further south into Mexico and through Florida to reach the Caribbean. Traffic on the Underground Railroad reached its peak between 1840 and 1860, especially after the United States passed the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850. The new law enabled bounty hunters or slave catchers to pursue and capture black people, presuming that they were escaped slaves. 
and, and enslave them. The act enabled bounty hunters to pursue black individuals, even in places where they would be legally free, like in the Northern United States and in Canada, even if those peoples were born into freedom or were legally granted freedom. There are a number of recorded attempts to kidnap escapees in Canada and return them to their former owners in the Southern states. When we talk about the Underground Railroad and Black history in North America more generally, there is a tendency for us to distinguish Canada as a place of freedom, of opportunity and tolerance from the United States which was a place where racism, discrimination, and slavery flourished. However, it's important to note that slavery has its own history in Canada as well. The British Empire was heavily active in the transatlantic slave trade. And as such, British colonizers settling in what is now Canada were two slave owners. To be sure, at this time, people traded and owned slaves as property. Slaves were valuable only for their productivity. People bought slaves for their labor, and that labor contributed to an owner's success and profit. Keeping this in mind, slavery in Canada did not operate the same way slavery did in the United States. Due to a colder climate, it was more expensive to feed, clothe, and keep slaves warm in Canada than it was in the South. Furthermore, this also meant that our growing seasons were shorter than in the South, meaning slave work was not as productive. Farms were smaller, and therefore agricultural production was also on a smaller scale. At the time, Canada just didn't have the capacity for big cash crops as they did in the US. So slavery in Canada was simply not as economically feasible as it was in the Southern US. Still, it existed. As people began to settle in the Maritimes, Quebec, and Ontario in the 1700s, many upper class families brought along or purchased domestic slaves to help in the home. American residents immigrating into Canada were particularly known to bring their slaves with them, especially after the American Revolution. By the 1790s, United Empire Loyalists had brought over 2,000 slaves with them to Canada between 500 and 700 slaves in Upper Canada alone. This meant that areas like Niagara, where many United Empire Loyalists settled after the revolution, would have had its share of slave, later, of slave labor to domesticate the land. Yes, slavery existed here in Niagara. Chloe Cooley was an enslaved Black woman in Queenston, Upper Canada. She was the property of Loyalist Adam Vrooman. On March 14, 1793, Chloe Cooley was bound by her owner 
and thrown in a boat to be taken across the Niagara River and sold in New York State. So she resisted so fiercely that Ruman required the assistance of two other men, causing a significant scene in Queenston. Peter Martin, a black loyalist and veteran of the Butler's Rangers, witnessed Cooley's struggles and screams, and along with witness William Grizzly, recorded the incident to Lieutenant Governor John Gray Simcoe and the Executive Council of Upper Canada. Grizzly, who was a white resident of nearby Mississauga Point and an employee of Ruman's, was able to provide a detailed account of the events as he was on the boat that transported Cooley, but he did not assist in restraining her. Simcoe was an abolitionist supporter and used the Chloe Cooley incident as a catalyst to introduce the 1793 Act to Limit Slavery in Upper Canada. The motion, however, was opposed. At least 12 out of the 25 person government were slave owners themselves or had family members who owned slaves. So the government brokered a compromise. And that July of 1793, the Upper Canada legislature passed an act to prevent the further introduction of slaves and to limit the terms of contract for servitude in the province. Although no enslaved persons in the province were freed outright, the act prohibited the importation of enslaved peoples into Upper Canada and allowed for the gradual abolition of enslavement. It was the first legislation in the entire British Empire towards the abolition of slavery and it set the stage for the beginnings of the Underground Railroad into Canada. Still, those who were slaves before 1793 were, were forced to remain in slavery and the slave trade within Upper Canada was still allowed to continue. Children born to slave parents were freed at the age of 25, after which they were no longer at their peak health or fitness. Children born to this generation would be free. So in theory, the act would abolish slavery in one generation. Furthermore, the 1793 act enabled fugitive slaves from the United States to find freedom once they crossed into Upper Canada. As the law prohibited the introduction of slaves, Black individuals entering Canada were essentially freed upon crossing. The act to limit slavery signaled a growing shift in attitudes towards slaveholders in British North America. And it contributed to the beginnings of an anti-slavery movement in the colony. It was also the first and only piece of legislation to limit enslavement in the British Empire until 1833, when an act for the abolition of slavery was passed, abolishing slavery throughout all British colonies, including Canada, as of August 1st, 1834. At the same time Upper Canada was moving to limit the slave trade in the colony, 
the United States was moving to further entrench the, institu the institution in law. As anti-slavery sentiments grew in the North and many Northern states began to abolish slavery, slave owners in the South began to fear that free states would become safe havens for their runaway slaves. The Fugitive Slave Act introduced in 1793 in the States, which was the same year that Upper Canada limited slave laws. The Fugitive Slave Act was designed to give slave owners and their agents, who were bounty hunters, the power to search for escaped slaves within the borders of free states. In the event that they captured a suspected slave, these hunters had to bring them before a judge and provide evidence proving the person was their property. If court officials were satisfied by their proof, the owner would be permitted to take custody of the slave and return to their home state. The law also imposed a $500 penalty for any person who helped harbor or conceal escaped slaves. The Fugitive Slave Act was further strengthened in 1850. And essentially allowed for the legalized kidnapping of black individuals. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 took this one step further. The new law forcibly compelled citizens to assist in the capture of runaway slaves. One of the most famous cases was of Solomon, Mose, of Solomon Northup, a freeborn black musician who was kidnapped in Washington DC in 1841. Northup would spend 12 years as a slave in Louisiana before winning back his freedom in 1853. The Underground Railroad was established as a direct result of the Fugitive Slave Acts. Canada became a promised land for freedom seekers and a final destination on the Underground Railroad after 1834. So why was St. Catharines a key terminal on the Underground Railroad? By the mid 1800s, we were already considered a large prosperous city with many opportunities for those who came searching. Our proximity to the United States border without directly neighboring the other country also made St. Catharines seem safer to those escaping enslavement. The Welland Canal brought industry where freedom seekers could find employment and the rural lands surrounding the city offered further opportunity. Many found work in the service industry at the many mineral spa resorts in the city. Due to our role on the Underground Railroad, in part, St. Catherine's history is steeped in rich and vibrant stories of the Black community and their contributions to our city. 
Refugee slaves settling in St. Catharines were determined to find freedom, but also to build a community for themselves to thrive in. Freedom seekers settled on lands granted by abolitionist and prominent citizen William Hamilton Merritt, with the most central area being around North Street, Geneva Street, and Welland Avenue. This area became known as Colored Town. In 1852, Merritt, along with others, founded a group called the Refugee Slaves Friends Society with the intention of assisting incoming freedom seekers arriving and settling in St. Catharines. Over 800 freedom seekers settled in St. Catharines in the 1850s alone, and the Friends Society found land, jobs, and resources to help freedom seekers establish themselves in their new homes. As more settled in the area, so did their need for the institutions integral to building community. Churches were vital to the establishment of this new community. Freedom seekers came together to build the Zion Baptist Church on Geneva Street, just south of North Street in the 1840s. As the first Baptist parish to come to St. Catharines, the chapel was one of the earliest gathering places for the Black community. The parish continued as a vibrant and lively congregation into the 1920s, where numbers and funds began to dwindle Eventually, the congregation moved to a smaller space. The original church was demolished in 1958. Members of the congregation still meet in St. Catharines today. One of the most famous historical figures connected to the Zion Baptist Church was Reverend Anthony Burns. Born into slavery in Virginia, Burns made headlines when he made an escape from his enslavement while doing work at the docks of Richmond, Virginia in 1854. Burns hid aboard a ship headed to Boston. After weeks of hiding in a cold, damp, and cramped space, Burns eventually made it to Boston to enjoy life as a free man. However, shortly after his arrival, Burns was arrested and recaptured under the Fugitive Slave Act. This, this law enabled the federal authorities to aid Southerners in pursuing and capturing slaves that had escaped their possession. Burns' recapture sparked the Boston Slave Riots of 1854. Over 50,000 people crowded the streets of Boston in his protest. However, despite this protest, Burns was sent back into slavery and sold to a plantation owner in North Carolina. Abolitionists in Boston did not stop fighting for his cause. And in 1855, they had raised enough money to purchase Anthony Burns' freedom. Once free, Burns pursued an education in religion, 
before settling in St. Catharines to become pastor of the Zion Baptist Church and a leader in the Black community in the city. Sadly, Reverend Anthony Burns, after all he endured, could only enjoy this role in our community for two years. He died in 1862 at the age of 28. Burns is buried in Victoria Long Cemetery and a plaque now stands to share his story. Another important religious institution in the early black community here in St. Catharines is the British Methodist Episcopal Church. The congregation forming around the same time as the Baptist congregation purchased the plot of land at the corner of Geneva and North Streets in 1840. They built the current Salem Chapel on the land in 1853. The BME Church was a key hub of abolitionist activity in St. Catharines in Canada, particularly due to its association with Harriet Tubman, famed conductor of the Underground Railroad. Her involvement with the church attracted other important figures to St. Catharines, including the powerful abolitionist voices of John Brown or Frederick Douglass, for example. The architecture of Salem Chapel is unique to Ontario. Its design features are reminiscent of churches in the Southern United States. The church with its wooden frame, white stucco walls and timber reinforcements still stands today. In fact, the church, the church is still owned, operated and maintained by Niagara's black community with a still active congregation. Salem Chapel is a National Historic Site, and I'd like to note here that the church is open seasonally for guide and tours made by appointment, and I would highly recommend a visit once our community reopens fully. Now, Harriet Tubman is synonymous with the Underground Railroad. She's arguably the most famous conductor and abolitionist and has a strong connection to St. Catharines. Harriet was born into slavery in Maryland around 1820. She was one of nine children. Her name at birth was Araminta. It wasn't until her marriage that she changed her name to Harriet. Now Harriet labored as a field slave on a plantation where she endured physically demanding working conditions and severe abuse. On a summer night in 1849, Harriet Tubman made her escape to freedom in the Northern States. She would later tell her biographer, Sarah H. Bradford, quote, I started with this idea in my head. There's two things I've got a right to, death or liberty. Tubman followed the Underground Railroad to Philadelphia in the free state of Pennsylvania, where she found employment as a cook and began to save money to finance her return trip to Maryland to rescue her family. Harriet Tubman used her freedom to help free other slaves. As a conductor on the Underground Railroad, she organized routes and helped to guide a fugitive 
refugee slaves on their journey to free lands. After the advent of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, Canada became a beacon for freedom and safety. Using her contacts on the Underground Railroad, Tubman was able to lead many freedom seekers to St. Catharines. In 1851, Tubman moved to St. Catharines, where she became this, where St. Catharines became the center for her abolitionist activities. She rented a boarding house near the BME Church on Geneva Street and enlisted many of St. Catharines' abolitionist societies to help her with her efforts. One of these organizations was the Refugee Slaves Friends Society, which again included William Hamilton Merritt as a member. While living in St. Catharines, Tubman made 11 return trips to the Southern US. Combining her efforts from before and during her residence in St. Catharines, Tubman's credited for freeing over 300 slaves in her lifetime. Tubman's bravery and persistence in helping to free so many black individuals from slavery earned her a reputation for being Moses of her people. Her incredible accomplishments were achieved despite there being a $40,000 reward for her capture, dead or alive. Harriet Tubman left St. Catharines by the end of the 1850s and she resettled in Auburn, New York. During the American Civil War, Tubman worked as a nurse, a cook, scout and spy for the Union forces. After the war, Tubman remained a leader in the Black community. She helped to educate freed men and women in the South, and she opened the Harriet Tubman Home for the Aged and Indigent Colored People in Auburn. Harriet Tubman died on March 10, 1913, leaving behind an influential legacy of courage and self-sacrifice. For the entirety of her free life, Tubman tirelessly committed to bettering the lives and circumstances of others. It's so easy for us to end the story of the Underground Railroad's tracks to St. Catharines by painting a picture of our city as a hopeful promised land of opportunity for freedom and while St. Catharines was a symbol of hope and freedom, escaped slaves also faced the racism and discrimination ingrained in our society. The law may have changed after 1893, and again, in, the law may have changed after 1793, and again in 1834, but changes to people's perceptions, prejudices, and values was not so immediate. This argument can be made even when considering the location of Colored Town. The records, the records confirm that abolitionists donated this tract of land to escape slaves to help them build new free lives. And I'm not disputing this. But we can speculate as to why the land was situated further away from the city center on the outskirts of the city at the time. 
Creating a neighborhood like Colored Town also naturally leads to segregation rather than integration. While the intentions of the abolitionists in the city were good, what underlying prejudices may have been present in segregating the black community from the rest of St. Catharines? We know members of the black community faced racism from St. Catharines residents directly, even at the peak of the Underground Railroad. In 1852, a race riot ensued when the black members of the Colored Corps militia on exercise were attacked by white men and several homes in Colored Town were burned down. Though the men were convicted after trial, racism persisted. Quoted from the Frederick Douglass paper, July 16, 1852. An event has just occurred in St. Catharines, which shows that the prejudice of color exists here as well as elsewhere to the detriment of the blacks and only requires an adequate exciting cause to ensure its development. At the annual militia training in that place, there was a mixture of races on the ground and whether the white people regarded themselves as degraded by this social amalgamation, a pretext for disturbance was not long wanting. A brick was thrown and this became the signal for a pretty general fighting. A rumor started that a fireman had been killed by Negroes and immediately a descent was made on the neighboring Negro village, which is said to have been nearly demolished. Racist sentiments continued further into the 1850s. In 1854, the waitstaff at nearly all of St. Catherine's popular tourist destination hotels left their posts in protest of the established policy forcing Black passengers to ride on their stagecoaches outside the carriage and with no regard to their rank, health, age, or weather. I quote below from the Provincial Freeman newspaper. The dramatic, the dramatic reaction decided at the meeting in August 1854 came after Reverend Paul Quinn, Bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in the United States and Canada, quote, came to the St. Catharines Depot in a feeble state of health. This fine old gentleman was compelled to climb up and take his seat outside to ride into town. Mitchell Freeman, August 12, 1854. There were many other similar occurrences of black travelers either waiting for hours at Port Jalousie for a coach into St. Catharines or having to ride atop the coach, even if their rank, age or health might demand a seat inside. And so a meeting was convened at which two resolutions were passed by the black waiters at the leading two hotels. Again, from the provincial freemen. Resolved that in this glorious land of freedom and in particularly under the equitable and powerful government, man is manned without respect to the color of his skin and that we as men will not submit to degrading terms of service, nor see our brethren treated with such indignity a manly spirit of resentment 
resolved that as waiters at the public hotels of St. Catharines, we will not continue in the service of our present employers unless in the management of their conveyances, they henceforth treat ourselves and the people and our people with that respect and civility to which we are entitled as men. Quoted Provincial Freeman, August 12th, 1854. The waiters walked off the job in protest. And luckily the hotels quickly reversed their policy. The most persistent form of discrimination against the black community in St. Catharines was the enforced segregation of black students in the school system. The Common Schools Act passed in 1850 allowed for the establishment of separate schools. White residents in the city used this law to force black children to, ascend, to attend separate schools from white children. By 1856, a colored school was established in St. Catharines. Again, this was during the peak of the Underground Railroad. At the same time that Harriet Tubman was living in St. Catharines and operating the headquarters of the network out of the BME church. How much of this decision to segregate the school system was fueled by white anxiety over the influx of freedom seekers settling in St. Catharines. I try to imagine what Harriet Tubman's reaction might have been to learn of the opening of the colored school. Black parents repeatedly petitioned against the segregation. During election time, they used their votes to defeat a school trustee they thought was actively working against their cause. Appeals to the school board continued as late as 1873, when the St. Catharines Committee on School Management reported that, quote, mixing colored and white children in same classes would provide destructive to the efficiencies of the schools. The colored schools was housed in the same building as the public schools, the St. George's Ward School and Central School on Church Street. But white and black children were separated into different classrooms with different teachers. It is not known exactly when integration, when integration began. It is not known exactly when integration began, but it is likely that black segregation was quietly phased out from the schools. As I now wrap up, I would like to share a friendly note that our broadcast lag is approximately two minutes. So if you do have any questions, feel free to post them in the chat box now and I will gladly wait for them. The tracks of the Underground Railroad brought hundreds of freedom seekers to St. Catharines to settle and build free lives. At the peak of the Underground Railroad, over 800 escaped slaves called St. Catharines their home. Yet, even when they reached the promised land, they faced many obstacles and challenges, all because of the color of their skin. Still, freedom seekers persisted. 
Here, many found employment and earned an income for the first time in their lives. In Colortown, these refugees built their own homes, tended their own gardens, raised their own livestock. For the first time, they could freely gather at their own church, celebrate together, and support one another as a community. St. Catharines made these opportunities possible. It was what so many risked their lives for. The story of the Underground Railroad is complicated and dynamic. It is the story of refugees risking their lives to find freedom and a better life. And generations of refugees and immigrants spanning cultures and countries have come to St. Catharines seeking these same opportunities once found in Colored Town. With each new generation, our city has grown and evolved. More colorful threads woven into the vibrant fabric of our community. The legacy of the Underground Railroad is preserved in the diversity we see in our community today. Generation by generation, prejudices fade and inclusivity is embraced just a little bit more. This work happens in the community on the ground level through grassroots efforts and advocacy. The Underground Railroad was the epitome of a grassroots movement Individuals of all lifestyles and backgrounds coming together under the shared value of human rights. If abolitionists could do it in secret, there's no reason why we can't continue to help each other and build up one another out in the open. Hi, it's Adrian again. We really hope you enjoyed the lecture. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us via our social media channels or at museum at stcatherines.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Next time on the VMLS VIA podcast, the horseless revolution.